Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violet. Uh, we're sorry we haven't had an episode for a little longer than usual uh, as a result of Paul finishing off his master's dissertation. Uh, so we're going to add some silver lining to the cloud, make some lemonade out of the lemons, uh, and we're going to make this episode about Paul's dissertation. Now, Paul's dissertation is about uh, immigration and migration. And usually when these debates are, are had uh, in the context of the UK, we're debating the impact that immigration has on the UK. Paul's dissertation is focused uh, rather on the opposite of this, or the impact of immigration on the countries where immigrants are coming from. So we hope you enjoy it. As always, if you have any questions, you can email us, you can find us on Twitter, uh, or you can use the contact form on our website. We hope you enjoy it. So the title of the dissertation is Does Emigration Improve Institutions? And it seems like a good place to start is defining what an institution is in the economic sense. So economic institutions have been something that's in vogue to talk about ever since the 1990s uh, and a, a paper by two men called Holland Jones which looked at what the fundamental difference is uh, between rich countries and poor countries. Um, now, some people might disagree with me, but in my opinion, that is the central question of economics. If we can understand uh, why some countries are so much wealthier than others, uh, we can then set about changing that and trying to make all countries as wealthy as the wealthiest countries. And um, throughout the history of economics, uh, a lot of things have been proposed as the possible reason, uh, the fundamental reason why some countries are richer than other others. And the general consensus nowadays is that the difference is between those countries that have strong economic institutions and those countries that have weak economic institutions. So institutions are the fundamental rules um, by which an economy works. Uh, they're often conflated with policies and they are similar to government policies in to the extent that they are things that the government does or rules that the government enshrines. Um, but institutions, as opposed to policies, are more important, more fundamental. Perhaps the most important economic institution is property rights. The idea that uh, the ownership of an individual thing, whether it's a unit of capital, whether it's a consumer good, um, whatever it might be, is clearly defined and that we uh, know who owns what and that when we have ownership of something, our right to own that thing is enshrined in law and the government protects our ownership of that thing. So um, the exact policies that the government puts in place, the exact way that the police and justice system works might differ from country to country, and that's a policy difference. But the institution is the fundamental idea of property rights, that if you own something, other people can't take it away from you, um, or if they do, there is some sort of process that means you get it back or you get compensated to prevent that from happening. Um, so just something that I wanted to clarify here, if institutions are the fundamental uh, principle or the way in which something works and there are different policies that can be implemented under that institution, um, are there in, in economics, uh, or is this still an open question, kind of a grade of better or worse policies which make that institution 
better or worse, or are they just kind of different versions of an institution which are equally good or effective? That's a really good question. Uh, the, the short answer is uh, no, there is not an established set of policies necessarily, um, but the extent to which policies improve institutions is a sort of benchmark by which the quality of policies might be measured. Um, but there is always, uh, economists, one of economists' favourite words is heterogeneity, uh, which means basically different things working in different ways in different contexts. So uh, there is a lot of uh, study into how institutions uh, come about and, and what determines different institutions, and it is certainly possible that in different circumstances, in different countries, at different times, um, policies might have different impacts. And so the policies that create good institutions are not necessarily the same um, everywhere and always. So property rights of one institution, um, I presume another one would be the rule of law. That's, talk, that's talked about a lot uh, in, in politics and economics. Um, the idea that no one is above the law, even if you're part of the government, you can't just arbitrarily decide to do certain things. Um, and having that in place kind of ensures the trust necessary for, for people to you know to act in a rational way and not be scared that one day the government is going to, to steal all their stuff or imprison them uh, in an arbitrary way. Are there any other important uh, economic institutions? There are. Uh, the, the third one that I have on the list here is, is very closely linked to rule of law, um, which is a lack of corruption. Yeah, it's a weird one because it's kind of the wrong way around. Corruption is not an economic institution. Corruption is an absence of an economic institution. Um, for those that don't know, corruption actually has quite a tightly defined uh, meaning. Corruption is one of those technical words that is used a lot by people who don't know what it means to just mean bad stuff. Um, corruption just means people behaving badly in the sort of common sense. Corruption in the economic sense means uh, one of two things. Either uh, public servants, so this could be police officers, it could be judges, it could be teachers, it could be whoever, but publicly employed um, officials, uh, charging people for their services. So, for example, if you go into court, because you've been accused of something or you're accusing someone else of something and rather than deciding the case on the merits of the prosecution and the defence, the judge decides the case based on who hands him more money behind closed doors, that is a, uh, that is a corrupt judge, that is a corrupt legal system. Or if the police will only investigate something that's gone missing when you pay them for it rather than being paid by the state, that's a corrupt police force, etc, etc. So public servants demanding money to do their jobs, and the other is members of the government taking government funds. So if the Treasury allocates uh, four million pounds for, I don't know, constructing new schools and gives this four million pounds to the education minister um, to go and build some new schools, and the education minister then spends three million pounds on new schools and one million pounds on a new duck pond and a Lamborghini and a swimming pool, um, that is a form of corruption as well. So it's, it's effectively misappropriation of government funds. And that ties into rule of law, because without rule of law, without government officials being subject to the law and being able to be uh, tried and prosecuted for any infringements of the law that they do commit, um, you can't possibly hope to stop corruption. And most of the countries in which corruption is uh, worst 
are also those where the law basically does not apply to certain groups of people and therefore the corruption cannot be stopped, they can't be brought to task for um, stealing government money or demanding bribes or whatever um, because they are effectively above the law. So usually, or, or at least in the, in the public sphere and uh, in kind of common discussions, when uh, the question of why are some countries prosperous and others aren't, when that question comes up, the answers are usually to do with, for example, resources. So there's oil here, there are minerals here, there's um, rare earth metals or whatever else, and this is why they're rich and other countries don't have them, so they're poor. Uh, or it's about geography, so this country's on an important strait, so it's a, it's a massive trading port, and this one's landlocked in the middle of a continent, so it's not. Um, another one which comes up a lot is, is colonialism, obviously, the idea that this country was a colonial power, and it stole all the wealth from that other country, and that's why this country is rich and that one's poor. Um, and, and ideology is another thing that comes up a lot as well, so uh, is this country in very big, broad, quote marks, capitalist, or socialist, or communist... Um, and that determines wealth. So why is it that you would argue that it's these economic institutions and not those other things, resources, um, colonialism, geography, ideology, which determine whether a country is rich or not? The, the sort of the short answer is a process of elimination. So we can go through those other um, theories and see why they don't work. Uh, and again, this is the sort of thing economists do with lots of data and lots of statistics is, is uh, try and correlate things together and we'll discuss statistics a little, a little more in depth uh, later on. So for example, uh, the idea that natural resources are the sort of source of wealth is a, is a pretty well debunked one now, um, given that uh, Europe was the first part of the world to become rich um, and did so with a pretty much an entire lack of resources, possibly with the exception of coal, um, whereas places such as Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, or much of South America, um, which have a wealth of resources, remain very poor. Um, it is worth saying, however, that the resource curse idea that gets thrown at you in GCSE geography, um, that resources are a significant fundamental determinant of wealth, but a negative one um, is also untrue because there are countries on both sides of this divide. So there are very resource-rich countries which are very rich. I mean, trying asking a Bahraini what Bahrain would look like without oil, um, or Norway or Australia, very resource-rich countries as well, and very rich and very well-developed. Um, and equally, places like Central African Republic is pretty resource-poor and is dirt-poor overall. So resources, uh, resources matter on the margin, Resources uh, contribute to the wealth of a country, uh, but they contribute actually to quite a small extent and are not the fundamental driver. Um, to understand why resources are not the fundamental driver, I would say to uh, the people need to understand the most basic, one of the most basic tenets of economics, which is that resources are the things we put together to make other goods and services. And physical natural resources like oil or iron ore or whatever are only uh, one class of resources they're only one type of resources and so more of those enables you to create more goods but there are other types of resources which are more intangible but actually much much more important um, such as labor knowledge skills ideas um, 
and realizing that those are the far more useful resource um, shows you that natural resources are useful but not the be all and end all. Um, the, the geography hypothesis is another interesting one. Um, as someone who's really into their geography knowledge and has a fairly encyclopedic uh, knowledge of, of the atlas, um, I get recommended lots of geography books. I get recommended uh, Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall uh, every five minutes, seemingly, which is uh, sort of the flag bearer of this particular um, uh, school of thought, which I call geographic determinism, the idea that uh, the way in which countries operate now and their wealth and standard of living is sort of predetermined by the geography of where the country is. And again, it doesn't make a huge deal of sense uh, as the fundamental driver of the difference. So again, geography does make a difference. For example, uh, being a landlocked country um, reduces uh, being a landlocked country, Cetra's Paribus reduces the wealth of a country because it makes trade harder simply because at the moment our most efficient technology for long distance trade is sea travel. And that might change at some point in the future as technology changes, in which case being landlocked might not be a disadvantage anymore. Um, it equally, being located in, as you said, on particular trade routes might mean that a country can get rich much more easily because it's much more able to trade with, with other neighbours. Um, but there are there are two, there are two sort of key problems with the with the geography thesis. One is that it assumes in most cases that countries are sort of fixed, and that countries have always and will always exist in the same place, uh, and therefore that place determines their wealth. Um, and I think probably the weakest um, point of the geographic determinism argument is is not realizing that um, countries' borders change, countries' uh, political centers of power and economic centers of power change over time. Borders move. Um, where a country is and the geography it is doomed to have is not predetermined. It changes with with wars and borders moving around all over the place. Um, and secondly, that lots of countries have very similar geographical locations or very similar um, geographic situations and yet ra uh, radically different uh, levels of income. So again, it's one of those things that is, is useful having, having uh, you know, a good climate to grow lots of crops or something, obviously means your agricultural sector will be stronger, but it's not the be all and end all. Um, and you can look at the sharp difference that occurs at borders to prove this in a lot of parts of the world. So for example, uh, Singapore is a favourite example um, of the geographic determinism school, that it happens to exist at a strait, at a very narrow piece of water in between China and the Western world, which means that an extraordinary amount of trade passes through that strait, uh, and so it's an obvious place to build a city where uh, lots of trade happens, lots of trade ships stop over there and, and manufacturing happens. Um, yet, that could equally be true of any other place along that strait. That, that geographical advantage is equally true of Sumatra, the Indonesian island, or the entirety of Malaysia. Um, and yet, no port in Malaysia, despite the fact that ports in Malaysia predate Singapore by a very long way, um, has reached the same level of wealth as Singapore by a very long way. Um, and so geography helps, but we can look at examples of places with similar or almost identical geography 
and see vast differences in wealth. So geography is not the fundamental driver of wealth differences. Do you want me to say something? Um, so with resources and geography, then what we're essentially saying is that these things do have some impact on the wealth of a country, but they're not the sole or the primary determinants. Um, and from a historian's standpoint, I would assume the argument is similar for colonialism, that colonialism has had some impact on the wealth of different countries, but it's not the sole determinant, uh, in the sense that before the kind of 1800s, 1700s, every country was poor. It's not like um, other parts of the world were rich and the colonial powers took all of the existing wealth for themselves. Yes, there were ludicrously wealthy people in places like India and China, but the average per capita wealth was low across the world. Um, and so the impact is probably more of an impact on long-term kind of ethnic divisions in a country, which then affect institutions rather than just simply saying colonialism means wealth has been stolen. Absolutely. Um, again, you can sort of, you can debunk that colonialism is the source of all wealth differences. Uh, a very common sort of argument on the left that we can divide the world into colonies and colonizers and that's the difference between the rich and the poor world um, simply by looking at the exceptions so some of the richest countries in the world are ex-colonies usually ex-british colonies so australia new zealand canada united states of america um, many of the poorest states in the world are also ex-colonies um, so it's not that being colonized is what makes countries rich nor is it that being colonized is what makes countries poor um, the other easy way to debunk the colonialism as the source of differences argument is simply to um, show that one came before the other. Um, Europe became richer and more powerful than the rest of the world and used that wealth and power to colonise the rest of the world, um, not the other way around. Uh, how colonies got established without some degree of um, economic, scientific and military dominance in the first place doesn't make sense. Uh, the, the Europe needed to be richer than the rest of the world in order to create colonies and create empires. Um, it did derive wealth from those as well, but the differences logically had to be pre-existing to some degree. Um, the colonial experience, however, is important in determining what institutions a country has. Um, the way in which countries are set up, the way in which countries are run, creates their institutions. And you can see the difference um, in how institutions get created and in how different types of colonial legacy create different institutions. If you look at the classic example uh, is North and South America. So uh, South America uh, was colonised first by Spanish, mostly in the Portuguese, um, who set up the sort of extractive institutions that then became common in many other colonies around the world and which doomed a lot of those countries to poverty. So uh, institutions in which there were clearly two classes of people, um, white Europeans and natives, uh, and in which um, productivity was not valued. There were not institutions that were built to try and uh, make people as productive as possible and allow them to keep the fruits of their own labour uh, and encourage investment and innovation. Institutions were in place to try and maintain social order by allowing resources to be extracted and shipped to Europe for manufacturing uh, with the sort of minimum fuss possible. 
Um, in North America, however, uh, the British operated a very different sort of form of colonialization, which was not based around a small number of Europeans coming over and trying to export as many resources back to Europe as possible. Um, it was based around Europeans permanently moving uh, and establishing their own uh, colonies and actually permanently living there. In which case, the um, institutions that were created uh, for those white European settlers uh, were actually, by the standards of the day, highly democratic, highly inclusive, um, and aimed at distributing economic power among those settlers as evenly as possible. Um, the US Constitution, US Declaration of, of uh, Bill of Rights, are uh, obviously what I'm thinking of here, and were actually very much uh, at the forefront of political freedom in their day. Uh, and so it's those countries being created on the basis of those inclusive and democratic economic institutions that creates the wealth difference that we see now between North and South America. The final caveat I should add to that is that we shouldn't uh, completely uncritically celebrate the establishment of those, uh, those inclusive institutions in North America because they were created for the white settler community which was brought in and completely replaced the existing Native American community. Um, and as good as America's economic institutions are, we should remember that they are built on a bedrock of genocide. So to summarise what we've said so far in, in a very extensive way, um, it's not solely resources or geography or colonialism or ideology which explains differences in wealth. It's institutions, uh, things like property rights, the rule of law, uh, a lack of corruption, um, having kind of functioning democratic systems. Um, and again, at least from my historian's perspective, the reason for this is if you look at uh, economic systems which don't have these institutions, things, things like uh, serfdom or uh, systems based on slavery or the feudal system, they fail to harness the most important resource, which is human creativity and labour and innovation. Uh, because if you have a system in which only a small group of people can profit uh, from economic activity, there is no incentive for, for others who don't have that, uh, that economic power to do anything else beyond simply survive. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a serf in Russia uh, in, the, you know, in the 16th century, your entire existence is based around you know, farming enough ve root vegetables and potatoes to make it through. Had pota potatoes have probably made it to Russia by that point. Um, farming enough root vegetables and potato to, potatoes to make it through the winter, you're not interested in innovating, you're not interested in anything beyond that. Um, if you are a, again, like a slave in any slave-owning society going you know, as far back as the, uh, as the Roman world in the Mediterranean, but also as recently as, um, as recently as the United States of America, particularly in the southern states, again, your economic activity is just about producing for the person who owns you. Uh, and basic survival, you don't have space to think about innovation or creativity or doing anything new. And therefore, having a system based on property rights, you own what you create. Having a system based on the rule of law, there are structures like the police and the state and the government which will protect your property rights uh, and prevent other people taking this stuff from you. Uh, having a lack of corruption, again, you're able to flourish economically 
without um, you know someone either stealing the fruits of your labor from the state or requiring you to pay additional costs in order to transport your goods or interact in a legal way with someone else. Uh, all of these things enable more people to be economically productive and therefore makes the country on the whole richer. Um, but it's worth remembering that good institutions is not just about creating the incentive for uh, innovation and uh, right-wing economists' favourite thing, hard work. Um, it's also about creating the right environment for investment. Uh, now, investment is one of those words that most people will think of as something that people people in pinstripe suits who care too much about Bitcoin and sneer about golf, uh, who live in Canary Wharf do, uh, and not something that ordinary people do. Investment simply means um, putting your money, putting your resources into a thing, usually a physical thing, but not necessarily a physical thing, that will allow you to produce more in the future. So. Uh, Going and doing a, a education is an investment, for example, in yourself. You are uh, putting resources into making yourself more productive in the future, whether you're doing so because the government says you have to or not. Uh, but also just, just buying any sort of new machinery or expanding a small business is investment. So if we think about the classic sort of image of a poor person in the world today, think about a, a, a farmer in a, in a poor country in the third world, um, Technological innovation is not really what they need. Um, mechanized farming equipment exists. It's, it's all around the world. Um, they don't have it and they don't use it. Uh, and the question then is sort of why? Why don't we introduce modern production techniques to the poor world? Uh, wouldn't that solve the problem? Um, so imagine yourself as a, as a farmer in a, in a third world country and you save up uh, a lot of money. You save up for a long time and eventually you buy you, you have enough to buy a tractor. So you buy a tractor that's going to make you much more productive, allow you to produce much more uh, food and make much higher income and, and off we go. Um, and it gets stolen. So you go to the police and report your stolen tractor uh, and they ask you if you have any proof that you owned this tractor and you don't. Uh, and they ask you if you're going to fund their search for the tractor and you don't see any choice, so you fund their search for the tractor, and it doesn't really appear to you that they're doing anything. They're actually just uh, rinsing you because of their position of power. That's what corruption is. They are demanding uh, money from you to do their job, and then probably not doing their job. Um, so you decide to buy another one, but you decide to get it insured first, and the insurance company says, sure, we'll insure you if uh, you can show us the deed to your farm because we need to know that you actually own the land that you're farming before we go and insure a tractor on it. And you don't have property rights for your land. You don't have proof of ownership of where you live. So you go to a judge and you try to get proof of ownership of your land and the judge asks you for a massive fee, etc., etc. I could go on for a long time about this. <laughs> um, this, is, this is how business works in poor countries. The point is that the lack of property rights, a lack of rule of law and endemic corruption doesn't just prevent new technologies from um, being introduced and being thought up. It also completely reduces the, the incentive for small business owners to invest, expand their business um, and raise their incomes. And the final part of that that I need to sort of hammer home is that the vast majority of poor people in the world are small business owners. They don't work in um, salaried, protected, contracted jobs. They are self-employed, 
trying to make and sell whatever they can. And so protecting the right to investment is often spun by certain non-economists on the left uh, into something that is about, uh, into something that only affects big corporations, quote unquote. Actually protecting investment uh, protecting property rights for the world poor and downtrodden is one of the most important things we can do to try and alleviate poverty. I went off again. Never mind. So I guess coming back to the to the central point uh, of your your thesis of your dissertation, institutions are important. Institutions are the main thing that explain wealth differences between countries. Um, how does emigration affect this? So. Uh, if you have someone coming from a less developed country to a developed country, how does that affect uh, the quality of institutions and uh, wealth generation in the country that they came from? And what, what are the mechanisms behind that? Presumably, if there, if there is an impact of emigration on the quality of institutions in less developed countries, um, this would happen because people from those countries come to developed countries, they see good quality institutions... Uh, and then to an extent replicate them uh, or or accelerate the transmission of those ideas and those institutions back to the countries where they were originally from. Right, and so uh, that that was the hypothesis of, of the distinction, absolutely. Does that effect um, happen? Um, and so I gathered a lot of data from the United Nations on um, migrant populations around the world in different countries, um, and from the World Bank, which does a measurement of the quality of economic institutions in in different countries, um, and various other things, and basically ran a regression. Um, I don't know if we're gonna do a sort of introductory econometrics uh, podcast at some point in the future about what a regression is, uh, but I'll do my best to do it in 30 seconds. A regression is basically a mathematical technique to see the extent to which two things are correlated. Except you can do it with much more than two things. Um, So uh, remember in school when you did a scatter graph in maths and you draw a line of best fit and you'd see uh, where the relationship was between these things by uh, trying to establish a line that created the smallest difference between your data points and that line at all at all times. A regression is basically a way of doing that, but with multiple different uh, dimensions. So rather than just an X and a Y dimension, where we're saying, okay, so to what extent does X correlate with Y? A regression is doing it with multiple different ones. So saying, to what extent do uh, X and Y combine to create Z? And to what extent is the difference in Z due to differences in X? And to what extent is it due to differences in Y? So uh, alongside these, I put in a load of different what we call control variables. So other things that might affect institutions, uh, things like uh, different variables that that show the geographical situation of a country, uh, the political situation of a country, the extent to which it trades with the rest of the world, the extent to which its financial system is integrated with the world financial system, etc., 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 so that the effect of those things on their institutions uh, would be contained within that model. And then put in measurements of migration as well, uh, and again, we might have to do an econometrics 
uh, podcast at some point, but the short answer is found that there is a strong relationship between uh, the number of people from a country living abroad and the strength of that country's institutions. And there is also a strong relationship between how good the institutions are in the country where those emigrants live. So uh, countries that have a small number of emigrants, only a small proportion of their population have ever left the country, and those who have left the country now live in other countries with poor institutions as well, tend to have poor institutions. Countries where a large number of people have, have left the country and gone to live elsewhere, and they've gone to live in countries with strong institutions, tend to have better institutions. So there is a link uh, between, there is a stronger relation between emigration to countries with good institutions and having good institutions yourself. Um, I guess the, the obvious follow-up is, find that that's great, there is a correlation, there is a strong correlation. Firstly, how do we know the correlation is causal? So how do we know that one thing causes another and they're not related through um, a third party variable or, or just it's coincidental? Um, and secondly, if it is causal, how do we know that the direction of causation is that uh, it's the emigration which is causing an improvement in the quality of institutions rather than, for example, say, um, people emigrating from countries with good institutions or okay institutions are likely to go to countries with better institutions? Absolutely the right question to ask. Um, and whenever anyone listening is doing any sort of statistical analysis of this kind, uh, you absolutely need to um, think about this. Uh, correlation is not necessarily indicative of causation, and just because there is a correlation doesn't mean there is any causation at all, let alone the one you want. Um, there are various tricks that economists use to try and uh, increase the likelihood, or sorry, not increase, but to try and assess the likelihood that the relationship you found is, is, is causal. Um, the philosophical answer to that question is, we never actually know. <laughs> uh, the David Hume philosophy answer to that is, causality is a sort of uh, a figment of the human imagination and we can never be entirely sure where it exists and where it doesn't, uh, but we can try and establish as much as possible. Um, for example, by thinking through the uh, possible interpretations of a correlation and trying to control uh, in the model, control in the scientific sense, for the other things. So uh, the existing research and the existing uh, literature on migration suggests that the difference between the quality of institutions in one country and the quality of institutions in another is a strong predictor of emigration. So people tend not to migrate from countries with great institutions to countries with poor institutions. They tend to migrate up, but because migrants are leaving looking for a, a better life, they tend to leave countries with poor institutions and go to countries with better institutions. So as institutions improve, we should see emigration decrease. So that suggests the correlation I found was not um, was not showing that countries with good institutions have more emigrants. It was showing that countries with more emigrants have good institutions. Um, so if, if this is true and there is a causal correlation, uh, it does seem to, to somewhat undermine the brain drain argument that um, when emigrants come over from 
developing countries to the developed world, they are robbing uh, their countries of origin of, of talent and brain power and, and dooming them into to further poverty and a, a further lack of development. And in fact, what you're saying is, if, if this correlation is causal, those immigrants coming to the developed world actually do benefit the quality of institutions and therefore uh, the capacity to generate wealth in their countries of origin. Um, the next follow-up question, I guess, is then how does this work? Because in a very fuzzy and tangible sense, I can see that immigrants coming to the developed world somehow like absorb the quality of institutions through osmosis and transmit it back home. But what are the actual vehicles and mechanisms of this transmission? Um, yeah, I guess the, the short answer to that is the telephone. Um, so there is a, uh, a sort of traditional understanding of, of brain drains that emigration uh, removes people from a country who are useful. Uh, this is from sometimes called the exit voice dichotomy. Uh, that the people who are leaving a country, people who are emigrating a country, by definition are dissatisfied with their quality of life in that country and would prefer to live in another one. Um, and in order for institutions to change, people need to demand that change. Exactly how depends on the political sort of institutions and the political functions of that country. Uh, whether they're successful or not is another whole whole question. But in order for institutions to change, there needs to be a significant body of people within that country demanding change. And if those people, rather than demanding institutional change where they live, are just moving to where the better institutions are, that it's a, it's a sort of a, a pressure valve. It reduces the pressure on the government to include those, uh, improve those institutions. The, the simple thing that that dichotomy doesn't take into account is that in the 21st century, with phones and email and Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and everything else, um, when people leave a country and migrate somewhere else, they don't cease to be part of that country entirely. Uh, once upon a time, we might have been able to think of them as having just completely left the social network of the country they, they grew up in. Uh, but nowadays they don't. They stay in contact with their friends and their family. Um, they, most migrants will call friends and family back home uh, every now and then and discuss the differences between where they live and where uh, they've come from. Um, many migrants also return. So one of the uh, questions that I didn't manage to uh, conclusively answer in this, uh, but which is interesting, is the extent to which returning migrants are the source of this, uh, this correlation. That it's people who go to a rich country for uh, education, for example, to do their degree, and while they are there, observe quality institutions and then come back and try and demand this in their own country, or people on temporary work visas, um, and the extent to which it's permanent migrants. That question is still open for debate, but the, the short answer is that people don't leave the social network of their home country when they migrate. So I'm, I'm not sure if you looked into this as part of your dissertation, but if you're saying the main method of transmission is effectively phones or the internet or, uh, or WhatsApp or WeChat or whatever kind of electronic digital form of communication is used between migrants and the social network in the country that they came from, um, does that mean that countries with a more kind of sensorious slant, which kind of block certain transmissions or block certain ideas, uh, are less likely to experience this effect? 
Um, so kind of thinking of the Great Firewall of China, for example, does that uh, reduce the impact of migration or, or emigration from China on Chinese institutions? It's a very good question. Um, I did not answer that. I uh, didn't look into that for a couple of reasons. One, when we say countries that sort of uh, assiduously uh, police what sort of communications come back from emigrants, and, and we're basically just talking about China. Um, and so that's a very difficult thing to measure because you're basically looking at the extent to which China is an exception. Uh, and even and you can do that, you can isolate the China data and see to what extent it's different, but that doesn't tell you that that is the reason why. Looking at one data point in China and seeing it's different, I didn't actually isolate China, but um, that's the problem with doing that, is it's only one data point, so it doesn't prove that that's the reason why China's institutions work differently. Um, and secondly, it's just extremely difficult to find data on well, that there isn't data on the extent to which diasporas remain connected. So that's a sort of an error lurking in all of all of the work that I did, is that um, we can find statistics on the number of people who are, say, Bangladeshi citizens living in Britain, um, and that gives us an idea of the size of that diaspora, but connectedness might change, and there might be certain diasporas that... Um, uh, don't keep in contact with home countries as much. For example, uh, people who've emigrated because they are fleeing persecution or fleeing civil war uh, are much less likely to then keep in regular contact with friends and family at home, for obvious reasons, uh, rather than people who've left yeah, to do a degree or to do a job or something. Uh, and the problem is that when we're looking at global migration data, there just aren't people at the border with a microphone asking people how often they plan to ring their mum. <laughs> we just, we, we don't know. Um, another question then is, if, if the main mechanism is communication, how do we know that it's communication and not uh, the practice of remittances where people, you know, go to another country um, where there are more work opportunities and more money to be made, make the money, send it back home, and it's that money which is driving the development of institutions and wealth. How do we know that it's it's generally uh, the communication of institutions rather than remittances? Um, again, the answer here is uh, process of elimination. So I do, the data does not exist, as I was saying, about um, the extent to which people communicate, so we can't prove that that is the mechanism. Um, but data does exist on remittances. There's lots of, lots of data on how much is remitted. Um, so uh, I did put remittance data into the model, uh, and the short answer is it has no effect. <laughs> the, the, uh, the I don't want to get into econometrics answer is um, computer says no. Computer says remittances <laughs> don't affect institutions. Um, the longer answer as to why remittances don't affect institutions is there are, there are theoretical reasons why they could go either way. So the argument that remittances might improve institutions is basically all predicated on them increasing income and that the families uh, and friends in origin countries who receive in, uh, remittances have higher incomes and that means that they are um, more able to pursue any particular political uh, campaign that they might like. They are uh, income is correlated with so many things and the ability to get your voice heard, the ability to put forward 
um, the political agenda that you have, etc., is one of those things. It also potentially shields uh, friends and family from uh, patronage. So if there is some sort of clientelistic network in a country whereby uh, there is a sort of system of bribes, this is common in sort of um, embryonic proto-democracies uh, where political parties will basically pay people to vote for them. Having an alternative source of income from outside removes you from that and gives you more sort of political freedom. Um, but there are also arguments the other way, one of which is that the having that sort of external insurance source of income that just, uh, like manna from heaven, is independent of the economic situation in the country you live in and of the, the political system, means that uh, the government's performance becomes more uh, separated from the experience of those people and their living standards. And so it reduces the incentive for people to demand better of their government because their income stream becomes independent of the quality of government's institutions. Um, and coming back to the income point, institutions being as they are, the sort of fundament of, of income differences, the extent to which remittances result in a rise in income in the long term is itself actually a function of institutions. Because in countries with good economic institutions, those families that receive remittances are able to put them to good use in whatever way. Uh, in those countries with poor institutions, remittances are exclusively used for consumption because the environment to invest them in something that creates a better income in the future does not exist. Um, so there might be an extent to which uh, remittances do have some effect uh, one way and the other, but it seems like certainly the net effect is, is zero. So I guess pulling all of this together then and thinking about the practical implications, it's that, well, as we, as we previously discussed uh, in, uh, in previous podcast episodes, immigration is good for developed countries, uh, but here it seems it's also good for developing countries through the mechanism of transmitting institutions. So is the policy proposal therefore let all of the migrants in? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Um, the, the, the finding of this paper really is uh, immigration or migration, voluntary migration is a win-win development strategy. It creates the uh, environment for long-term growth and, and income rises in poor countries. And as we've covered before, it's, it's not just cheap, but it's beneficial to countries as well. Um, compared to something like development aid, there's, there's basically no cost to, to allowing more immigrants. Um, the, the slight caveat to that is, is we do need to think about how um, migrants observe institutions and how they absorb the idea of quality institutions and then transmit that back home. Um, because this effect is not just dependent on the people who migrate being economic scraps already and sort of uh, discussing rule of law with their with their families over Zoom. Um, but these are things that people do notice, even if they don't know they're called institutions and they don't know necessarily the economic significance of them. Certainly if you grow up in a country where corruption is endemic and you're used to uh, avoiding the police at all costs because they won't help you, they'll just try and squeeze as much money out of you as possible, or uh, you're used to just 
accepting abuse at work and not having any sort of legal recourse to do about it. Um, seeing the people that you work with or perhaps going to the police yourself because you have something stolen or whatever and then finding that they actually do something about it or perhaps um, you know being having your contract terminated unfairly and then filing an employment tribunal and winning something like that and not having to pay the judge to win the experience of going through these institutions uh, is what matters and then obviously that's something noteworthy that people will then report home uh, and and that idea that quality institutions are possible and that one of the major differences in quality of life between rich countries and poor countries is that quality of institution and the fact that those matter um, is really important and does seem to be the mechanism by which this this works and the sort of the corollary the point of that is that if migrants are allowed to move but are not sufficiently integrated into the society that they move to um, and being unable to speak the language or being barred from certain types of employment and only able to be employed on sort of zero hour contracts or something um, prevents the or reduces the extent to which they will come into contact with those institutions in their daily lives uh, and so I sort of need to add to that that it's not just enough to allow migration from poor countries to rich countries it's also important that those immigrants are properly integrated in society allowed to live and work freely in those societies where they will then come across those uh, institutions and transmit them home and it's important that rich countries maintain those institutions because the other thing uh, that I already said but I'll say it again is that the quality of institutions in the country that immigrants move to is what's so important and migration to uh, countries that also have shocking institutions is not significant. So for example, um, largely, the uh, migration from South Asia to the Middle East that is uh, massive at the moment is, again, I didn't look at it specifically, but the data would suggest, unlikely to result in significant changes to institutions. Whereas uh, one of the most sort of significant uh, migration flows is that between um, South America, specifically Mexico, and the US, because the US has high quality economic institutions, and so those immigrants come into contact with them a lot and transmit that demand home. Um, and I guess then on the on the eve of the the federal elections in Germany, um, it will be really interesting to see 10, 20, 30 years down the line how Merkel's big political gamble letting in a million uh, refugees from from Syria and uh, and Libya and, and Iraq um, and integrating them really strongly into German society will pay off decades down the line uh, when those people return or how they transmit those ideas back to their countries uh, after you know wars and conflict there are over how they help to rebuild uh, and whether that then has a substantial impact uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast uh, as always, if you have any questions, clarifications or disagreements, you can contact us at our website, uh, theviolet.net. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and we're looking forward to having you tune in next time.